This is Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of ex-video store guys who still just love talking about movies. I'm CJ Talbot, and joining me as always will be Cesar Alejandro from Filmsmash.com. Today's episode features Rob Reiner's 1986 film Stand By Me, based on the story by Stephen King. All right, here we go. Welcome back. Uh, how's everything going, Cesar? Uh, pretty well. You know, uh, we talked a little bit uh, before we uh, hit the record uh, button, but uh, we're heading into uh, fall now. It still uh, feels quite a bit like summer, um, but I'm looking forward to the new season, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, well, I, I think I mentioned this to you, but it, we've been having triple digits in uh, Southern California, so uh, I'm, it's getting cooler at night, so I'm definitely looking forward to a little bit of a break from the heat, uh, even though we don't really get, like, winter around here. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I'll certainly miss, uh, miss our, our, our fall trips to the Senator Theater and to the diner after movies and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think um, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, the end of summer tends to be um, pretty light in terms of movies I want to see theatrically. So with uh, with fall coming up, there's a, a number of films I'm quite excited to be um, having an opportunity to watch. So, uh, such as? Do tell. Well, I do want to watch Joker. I want to watch Ad Astra. Um, you're going to have a number of uh, the big, of course, uh, award contenders coming out in the next month or two. Uh, so that's exciting. I'm a little less excited about uh, um, the deluge of kind of family-friendly Christmas movies, which I you know, I have less and less interest in every year. But, uh, you know, they have their place. Yes. I. You know, I, I'm just... I, sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking... I don't even know what's coming out this fall. I mean, there's a Star Wars movie, but... It's, <laughs> Aside from that, I've been seeing previews for the Goldfinch. Um, I've been I've been following less and less coverage of stuff like um, Toronto International and Fantastic Fest and things like that. So, um, you know, as far as like what to look forward to this fall, I'm kind of a little bit in the dark right now. Well, I mean, like I think if it's something that uh, um, gets a lot of buzz people will be aware of it. I think the smaller films are always the ones that kind of catch my interest certainly more. Yeah. Um, with so many movies coming out, though, it's tough. You know, I think, thankfully, our podcast features on older movies that tend to be pretty accessible. Um, a lot of the ones I, I want to watch, sometimes you really got to kind of go and search it out, which, you know, is part of the fun of it, I guess. But uh, I'm planning a couple trips to, you know, to, like, D.C. to see one or two films that are coming out, so. Yeah, um, I guess for me, like, as far as fall movies, I think there's a lack of movies coming out from, like, big filmmakers, like, so I think it's probably why I'm a little bit less involved right now. You know, I'm sure I'll, you know, I'll definitely be out watching movies, but, uh, you know, there's no P.T. Anderson, there's no Spielberg, there's no... David Fincher, there, you know, all the, you know, the the big filmmakers that are like, a hundred percent must see. Like, there's nothing like that happening this year. Well, everyone's 
everyone's working on something else, I guess. So. Well, and it's, yeah, it also may be a symptom of where the industry is going right now, you know, and, and, and the lack of anything coming out except for franchises and temples. Um, the, you know, the mid-budget movie has kind of moved into, like, television and streaming. And I, I think I think filmmakers like, you know, like PT and 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 Spielberg and, um, you know, who used to find their their bread and butter with like you know the the forty to sixty million dollar movie uh, are having a very difficult time figuring out what they're doing now. I mean, you have Scorsese's Irishman coming out too, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's going to be a big one. I'm looking forward to that just to see, you know. I'm definitely not going to be watching on Netflix for my first viewing, but, uh, no, we'll seek uh, that out in the movie theater. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't. Yeah. Well, like, you know, like Nolan's got a big movie coming out next year. Uh, Tenant, is that what it's called? Um, I don't know. And then like, I think Spielberg's producing some stuff for Apple TV, but I'm not sure what it is. Uh, his name's been thrown around for a couple of projects, like Black Eagles, and but uh, I'm not sure how far along in development any of that stuff is. Yeah. All right. Well, whatever. Um, so, you know, switching gears real quick, I guess, uh, as as is our custom. What have you been watching recently, sir? Uh, what can you recommend to the folks at home? Oh, geez. Um, well, like uh, like I mentioned, it's uh, towards the end of summer. I kind of uh, feel. Routine is the name of the game. So, yeah, that's not just in terms of movie watching, but also, um, I guess, just life in general. Things uh, kind of plateau out. So I haven't really been watching as much as I wanted to um, this past, or since our last recording. Um, I did spend um, a handful of time watching a number of animated shorts uh, recently on a... Uh, the Canopy streaming service, which I recommend heavily. Okay, recent or classic animation? Well, most of it is, uh, uh, it's a mix. So some stuff is, you know, as recent as like a year or two ago. Some stuff is as old as like the 80s or 90s. But it's, uh, there's a, a pretty large catalog of, uh, of offerings that they have. Um, like most recently I watched uh, an animated film called Strings. Um, it's a Canadian uh, short that's maybe about 10 or 12 minutes from 1991. Um, I want to say the director and animator was um, Catherine Wilby, um, but it's you. It uses kind of like um, like a static uh, painted um, aesthetic that tells a story about you know um, two neighbors uh, who share a roof slash uh, ceiling and kind of like a, just a minute little interaction they have between each other when one of them takes a bath and leaks underneath. Um, very interesting. I watched a number of German shorts uh, as well, maybe a week or two ago, which were pretty good. Uh, one was about uh, a young man telling a story about his grandfather, but in the film um, it was told through static uh, photographs, mostly black and white. Uh, okay. but the film was basically Photoshop, so like his grandfather was actually a grizzly bear. <laughs> pictures. Okay. So, <laughs> so like it's pictures of him. He's he's narrating, telling stories about his father or his grandfather enjoying 
um, gardening, fixing his car. Um, and then also he jumps into like a very kind of like surrealist flashback to his time during World War II. Um, and there's a couple humorous bits of uh, his grandfather being a paratrooper. So you see a photoshopped image of a grizzly bear on a parachute and, you know, posing with pictures of with, uh, with German soldiers. That sounds hilarious. Uh, but it gets, it does get dark, but I guess uh, humanity does do that when he recounts the story about how his father killed, or his grandfather killed, um, like a wild dog or something okay. um, in, in this family yard. So it turns dark, and, you know, it's it was interesting for me in that particular short how the Nazi aspect of the war was toned down. Um, he just mentions... You know, it's the war. They don't mention Nazism, and they don't mention anything that he might have done um, as a Nazi. You know, as the way we understand it in the United States. Okay. Um, okay. But it turns into like you know a surprisingly kind of sweet memoir. I think it ends with the grandfather having to move to. Man, when I say grandfather, it's weird because you know the whole time it's a bear in pictures. The grandfather <laughs> moving into like an apartment wearing eyeglasses and trying to like send emails to his grandson on like a giant on a computer with a giant monitor it's it's really weird but it was it was quite entertaining and unique so i wouldn't say the film itself is uh terrific but it certainly captured my attention and um recently the short subject has kind of recaptured um a lot of allure for me so i've been searching out as much as i can lately Cool. Uh, I really love shorts as well, as you know. Um, so that's you know one of one of the things that I miss about the Maryland Film Festival is uh, you know being out in Southern California. The last couple of years, I have not been able to go uh, attend the festival, and uh, they have a, a huge focus on shorts and emerging filmmakers. And that was watching the shorts programs has always been one of my favorite things to do at that festival. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the Nazi connection in that short film, and that reminded me that I am looking forward to Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so there's that. Um, but yeah, so you said this was—is this on the Academy's website? No, it was on. Um, there's a streaming service called Canopy, which is available for free in a lot of in a lot of places if you have um, either a student ID, um, a, a valid student ID, or a library card. So. I connected to an account using the Baltimore County Public Library System. Okay. Um, you just basically type in your email, make an account, and type in your library card number. That's cool. You know, I have heard of that, actually, now that you mention that, but I, I've not done that myself. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, a number of good offerings. Uh, Criterion has a channel on there. A24 has got a channel on there. So a number of their films. Uh, Criterion selection is, is smaller compared, but you have your usual suspects, things like Ikiru, Seven, Samurai, um, Le Samurai, some uh, Denev, Jacques Dati, uh, mix of stuff. Um, A24, almost their entire catalog is up there, though. Awesome. It just takes a little bit of time. So, like, Hereditary and First Reform, I think, are their most recent titles from there. But a number of international foreign films, um, they're pretty much the only place you can watch a lot of this stuff. So, Awesome. Cool. Um, well, uh, Chelsea and I recently saw It Chapter 2, but I don't want to talk about that since we're going to be talking about a Stephen King story on the, on the episode. Um, <laughs> also because I, I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> you know, uh, I haven't, uh, read, I haven't watched It Chapter 1 myself, 
Well, I, I thought chapter one was pretty good. Um, Stephen King horror stories don't typically like connect with me in the way that they do a lot of other people. Um, and I, it in particular, the character Pennywise, uh, I'm not really afraid of clowns, so that doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, I mean, obviously the eating children part does, yeah, it is pretty scary, but, uh, there's also like a sort of goofy quality to Pennywise as a character, uh, and especially the way that, uh, Bill Skarsgård plays him. Um, and I, I think that that sort of keeps, keeps the horror at arm's length for me in many ways. Um, although there's certainly some creepy scenes in both chapter one and chapter two, um, uh, I, I found, uh, that neither one of them really, like, struck a chord with me. Like, I'd, I wouldn't be in a hurry to revisit either of them. Um, but, uh, but the yeah, one... I feel the same way about clowns, so yeah, I, I don't have any aversion to them at all. I understand people's, uh, fear and kind of distrust of clowns, just in general, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get the horror. Yeah. Um, but the, I guess the one movie that I will recommend that I recently saw free on Amazon Prime was, uh, Blake Edwards, um, 1962 crime film, Experiment in Terror, uh, which, uh, contrary to the title, is not really a horror movie, um, and it's, it's about a, uh, a bank teller played by Lee Remick, um, who is terrorized by the psychopath uh, played by Ross Martin. And uh, he wants her to steal $100,000 from her bank and obviously give it to him. And he's willing to give her some of it for doing this, but, uh, but she cannot refuse. He, he's terrorizing her and he's threatening her, the life of her little sister played by Stephanie Powers from uh, Heart to Heart fame. And uh, so she turns to the FBI, and Glenn Ford plays an FBI agent who works the case. And uh, it's got uh, a couple of a couple of really like tense scenes. There's a really creepy scene in a in a room full of mannequins that I thought was really effective. Um, it's got some great black and white cinematography, and uh, a really nice use of real San Francisco locations, uh, including the finale of the movie um, takes place at Candlestick Park. Um, so, you know, I, I, Blake Edwards for a lot of people is, is, is solely a comedy guy, but, uh, in the sixties he did quite a few crime related things, including the Peter Gunn, uh, TV series and movie and, and this one, of course. Um, so he's not just the Pink Panther dude. Um, so yeah, I mean, check it out. I thought it was really good. Yeah. I think I saw you post it on, uh, Letterboxd. Yeah. I think I, I think I added it to my watch list. It's on there, but you know that watch list is also thousands of movies long. Absolutely, yeah, as is mine. Yeah, that should be. So. Cool. <clears throat> but yeah, other than that, I, I've just um, I've actually been um, because when I get home at night, it's it's usually very late, and I need to uh, cook and eat. Uh, my lifestyle has changed so dramatically uh, over the past couple of years um, that sometimes when I get home, I, I really just don't have a full movie in me. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm watching fewer movies um, each week um, and throughout the year. Uh, but uh, I have been re-watching Veronica Mars uh, because I was looking forward to seeing the new um, season four on Hulu. 
Uh, so I'm kind of like midway through season two right now. I'm just watching like an episode or two here and there. Um, and uh, is season two the the one with Steven Steve Gutenberg? Steve Gutenberg, yes, he plays he plays the mayor or something. He, or he's I think he's, he's like a county councilman, and he's like a mayoral candidate or something like that. I don't yeah, think he's, he's the, the actual mayor. One of the um, supporting characters. I think I had only ever watched the first full season. And uh, so when, when Hulu posted that they had a fourth season of new episodes coming out, I, I started slowly rewatching season one. Um, to be honest, it's, a, it's kind of a relic of its time. It looks like it's shot on video. Um, so like the, the, the actual show itself has, has a very sort of like 90s digital look to it, like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and uh, so is that Veronica Mars um, full frame, or is it's not widescreen, is it? Uh, it, it is on Hulu. <laughs> I I haven't checked the settings to see if it should be full frame, but like when I when I actually go to Hulu and and queue it up, uh, it it does uh, basically fill my entire TV screen. Okay, so. I remember because it, it was originally a UPN UPN program before uh, the merger between WB and. United Paramount Network, yeah. so I was a fan of that show when it originally aired. Yeah. So, so uh, it has its moments. I, I, I generally, uh, I, I wouldn't say I love the show, but like it's it's interesting enough to keep me going. Like I was hoping for a little bit more detective stuff, but it's really, um, it's really like light Nancy Drewish. Um, <laughs> it, and I, mean, uh, I, I think. Um, Kristen Bell's pretty good. Enrico Colantoni, I like a lot in that show. Oh, absolutely. And their their relationship is a really um, great one. You know, like uh, there's that whole there's a whole plot thread through season one and early season two, where she thinks that maybe uh, he isn't her real father, and uh, and then you know she has to come to terms with the fact that he may not be, uh, and then also you know has to realize that it it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so there's there's a really sweet quality to it. So that in in the one of the one of the more recent episodes that I watched, I wouldn't say the show is very funny, um, but in in the, one of the more recent episodes, she she takes up a babysitting job be, like because it relates to a case that she's working on, and when she leaves the babysitting, the dad comes out to pay her, and and uh, it really like in a nonchalant fashion is like, you know, this is what, this is what we do. We'll definitely have you back. Great job. And he, and he's like, and he's like, yeah. And you know, on Saturdays, my wife does this. So if you want to come over and fool around and get drunk or whatever, that's cool. And then he just keeps going and it like completely stuns her. And it's like one of the most, it's the, one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen on the show. You know, um, I don't remember that joke. <laughs> he, he basically just really nonchalantly makes a pass at her and, and gives her the option for, you know, for the booty call, so... Yeah, you want to get free key, whatever, you know, no, <laughs> no pressure. I got pot. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's, you know, moving on. That's kind of what I've been doing. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I have the time or um, the time to rewatch all three seasons plus the movie before the new season starts. I'll probably just watch the new season, so yeah. whenever it hit. Slowly, I'm sure, but... That's one I don't watch much television, but that's probably one I'll, I will because uh, 
I was invested in that program when it came out originally. So yeah, it, it is up now, so you can watch them. Hmm. Well, not immediately. I'm going to be watching a lot of horror movies. I'm sure in the next month and a half. Well, you you better get whatever it is in now, um, because starting in November, Disney Plus will be out. You'll have to watch all those Marvel shows and The Mandalorian. Well, those shows are are aren't going to be released. All at once, though. A lot of that stuff will be released weekly. Once a week, yeah, yeah. I Actually, I, I really like that decision uh, on Absolutely. their part, actually. We, okay, let's talk about that, then. Because I really I really like the idea that the like the Mandalorian is going to be like the first big one. Um, but the weekly release of it, I, you know, I'm so thankful for. <laughs> I really am, so. I think, oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, Disney Plus, obviously, is an extension of Disney corporate. And they're all about families. And, I, you know, I think, you know... Uh, even without any kids, I'm coming to, to understand that, you know, uh, that as an adult, your life becomes incredibly busy and you don't always have, um, you know, 20 hours to, uh, to binge watch a season of a TV show when it's dropped. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the past few years with Netflix is that the conversation happens so fast that... It's fun for those people who can do it, who can engage in it, who can watch everything and then get online and talk to their friends and and do that water cooler thing, you know, where they're talking about everything that's happening over the full season. But for other people, they feel very behind. Uh, They feel like they can't catch up. And then in many cases, they're not watching it as a result of it. You know, like it it, it almost becomes the, the reverse effect of what is intended. Um, and I think Disney by doing this and saying, okay, we're going to release one episode a week. Um, it gives the people the breathing room that they need to watch it to include a larger audience in the conversation. I also think the conversation will, you know, by nature be extended. I think if you look at the biggest shows that Netflix puts out with all the episodes coming out at once, the buzz is very high initially, but a month later, no one's talking about it. Right. Um, Stranger Things season three is something that was released to great fanfare. Um, Independence Day release, holiday. Lots of people were talking about watching it, binging it, and um, discussing details of the show. But, you know, six weeks out, um, nary a whisper about it at all. I think with The Mandalorian, especially with a Star Wars film coming out later this year, um, releasing it uh, an episode at a time gives people a chance to discuss it and the longevity of the show will be much more secure, especially leading up to the new film. And, yeah. You know, that, that discussion, I think, uh, also gives time for reflection. So people can do their analysis of an episode and have much more, I guess, qualified discussion because you know, binging, of course, affords opportunity to get a story in uh, as quickly as possible. But it also, I think, you lose... Um, I guess you lose the analysis as a viewer because, you know, the gratification of getting a new episode, you know, doesn't have you reflect on where uh, a cliffhanger should be. Sure. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I, and I think, um, the way that they're approaching these seems like they're approaching them from a production standpoint on the same level that they would with their blockbuster movies. And I think you're right, that extra time for reflection and that extra time for people to re-watch the same episode maybe before they see the next one um, will allow them to appreciate the amount of um, 
production value and money and performance and, and craft that is going into them. I think uh, the Game of Thrones uh, series is a good example of how that works better than complete series being dropped um, as an example from this year. The discussion about Game of Thrones, especially considering it was their final season this year, um, probably prompted some of the more immediate um, and more passionate discussions I've ever seen online. So hopefully um, that is something that'll be recreated with this upcoming slate of films and television programs. So yeah, because in the end, you know, what are we doing here? We're talking about movies. You know, I, that stuff is enjoyable to me. I want it to last as long as it can, especially for something as beloved uh, to a lot of people as Star Wars or Marvel programming or Pixar, you know? Yeah. Now, um, do you, do you think that at some point for certain shows that they may end up dropping the entire season? Or do you think that that, that policy will be adopted for everything that they put out? Um, I think it, I think you're definitely going to see stuff come out that's going to be dropped in its entirety. I think it behooves Disney to release them uh, in a weekly format as tra- like traditional television. But I think there's no way they can avoid it. I see them starting that with uh, probably children's programming first because you know, kids are always starving for content. And you know, as long as they can produce it in a timely enough manner, I think the kids stuff is what you'll probably see released um, in its entirety before any thing like Star Wars or Marvel. You know? Yeah, I think that makes sense. That was a nice little, I did not expect to have uh, that part of our discussion come up in recording. So, Well, that's... <laughs> That's where Aaron thoughts bring us. A nice spontaneous tangent there. Um, all right, so so well, let's move on to uh, to our main discussion for Stand by Me. Um, so Cesar, this was your pick, Stand by Me, uh, directed by Rob Reiner, nineteen eighty five. Uh, what is Stand by Me about? Well, Stand by Me is of course based on the Stephen King novella, The Body. Um, it's a uh, coming of age tale set in uh, the early 1950s uh, about a group of boys who set out uh, on a trip to to find a dead body Um, along the way they they encounter a number of uh, memorable uh, youthful indiscretions and uh, this we through them discover a lot about uh, I guess childhood adolescence and uh, what growing up really means okay all right, very good. Uh, how did how did you watch this movie? Uh, well, I picked up the uh, let's see the twenty fifth anniversary Blu Ray released by Sony, um, which unfortunately does not have a ton of supplemental features on it. Um, but uh, you know the transfer was pretty good, and uh, I recall watching this film a number of times as a kid. But probably this viewing for this recording was the first time I'd seen it close to. 10 or 15 years. I, I watched it on Amazon Prime, uh, and uh, because we were supposed to originally record this two weeks ago? Yeah, two, week ago. two weeks ago for Labor Day. Okay. Which was, which was not planned, but the movie takes place like the weekend before Labor Day in the movie. Uh, and yeah, and we were that. we were going to record it before Labor Day, um, but uh, you know life got in the way, and we had to we had to postpone. So, but I I rented it on Amazon Prime, 
and watched it a couple of weeks ago. And I wanted to keep it fresh, so this morning I watched it on Amazon Prime again. So you owe me four bucks. <laughs> four bucks? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but yeah, um, so this is a movie, is this a movie when you grew up that you loved as a kid? You know, I wouldn't say I loved it because, you know, it's certain, it, it's a mature film, um, for, um, for someone who's an adolescent, despite, you know, the young characters, I think, uh, I enjoyed the film, but certainly someone being younger, it hits me a lot harder as an adult than it does as a kid, as a kid, you kind of look at it uh, with almost like a mature Sandlot quality to it. It's just kids kind of doing their thing. But you know, as an adult, you're watching, uh, you're watching the kids kind of go through their trials. And you know, I, re- I remember enjoying it a lot. But I think the depth of the film surprised me in this video. Okay, you mentioned the Sandlot. I, there's a lot of kid movie DNA in this film. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, the Goonies was the year prior to this, um, and I, I thought it was very interesting that the beginning of this movie is so much like the beginning of Goonies, where they're all in their kind of clubhouse, and quote unquote the fat kid comes and Corey Feldman. <laughs> yeah, Corey Feldman. Um, but quote unquote, like the fat kid comes to get into the clubhouse, and they won't let him in. He doesn't know the secret knock. Yeah, they don't make him do a truffle shuffle or anything like that. But like, as soon as he gets in, he's like, "Oh, guys, you won't believe this. Let me tell you the story," which is exactly like Chunk in the Goonies. So like, that gave me a little bit of a chuckle when I rewatched it because um, I'd never, I to be honest, I only remember Stand by Me in pieces from seeing it probably on HBO and stuff. Uh, I don't think I ever saw it in the movie theater. Um, so certain scenes stood out, obviously, like the leeches and things like that. But uh, you know, like rewatching the beginning of this movie. Number one, I thought it was super odd to open the movie with a car in the middle of a road just stopped with Richard Dreyfus in there looking at a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that is really funny, like, especially like in retrospect, because, um, you know, I mean, it's, uh, like I mentioned, I hadn't watched it in over, over 10 years. But I definitely did not remember that scene at all. Um, but if I was like, is this the right film? If, if we hadn't, you know, heard the incidental, like, uh, arrangement of Stand By Me at the beginning, I would have thought maybe I was watching the wrong film. Yeah. Well, that's funny because the score, the, the, I don't, I didn't look it up, but I don't think there's an actual score for this movie. There's pop songs that are played, like rock songs that are played over the radio in the, in the movie like lollipop and stuff like that. Um, but the rest of the movie is only underscored by different versions of Stand By Me, which I thought was super, like, odd and un- not unnerving, but I just, I don't know. It was, it, it, I think I was a little irritated by it. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's like when you watch that Inception and it's uh, Edith Piaf, like, music just at different speeds, yeah? Yeah, but you don't realize that. Like, you have to actually, like... You know, like, someone had to tell me that about Inception. Like, I would have never known that watching the movie. Well, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> but this is, like, right in your face, though. <laughs> this is... And Stand By Me is such, like, a... <clears throat> I don't know. It's, it's kind of a sad song, 
So, like, I don't know. Like, right. we're going to come back to the bookended scenes because I want to talk about that later because I, I have an issue with it. Um, but I want to get into good stuff first. And I think um, this is this is a, a, a movie um, that is not necessarily plot-driven, um, but much more character-driven, you know, with these four characters, uh, this ensemble group of kids who all went on you know, to, uh, to maybe not bigger things, but, you know, to have full careers, um, you know, and unfortunately River Phoenix was taken away from us way too early, but, you know, um, we know these kids from this movie for sure, but we know these kids from many other things that happen after this as well. Um, so let's talk about these four characters. All right. So you've got Vern, uh, he's the Jerry O'Connell character. Uh, Teddy is the Corey Feldman character, Chris is the River Phoenix character, and Gordy is Will Wheaton. Um, so, like, I, I feel like, and, and, and you can, uh, you could jump in here at, at any point, I, I feel like Vern's the least fleshed out, um, of, of the four characters. So, not that, not that Jerry O'Connell kind of gets, like, a short shrift or anything like that, um, but... We know he's got a brother, but aside from that, we don't really know a whole lot about his family life, and he seems to be the one kid out of the four that doesn't have home problems. Yeah, I mean, not visible, not as visible ones, certainly, um, or, or anything that gets addressed during the trip. He's uh, He tends to be more, I wouldn't say happy-go-lucky, but he's probably more well-adjusted than, uh, definitely more well-adjusted than the other ones. Um He's got normal kid problems, where I yeah. think I, I think the other ones all have uh, more, maybe not uncommon problems, but more acute uh, psychological issues resulting from something going on with their family. Um, more whereas, ones, definitely. Yeah, so like, yeah, I mean, Vern calls himself the fat kid, um, but he's really not like obese. He's just yeah. he's just uh, he's still got like some baby fat on him. I mean, if you look at yeah. Jerry O'Connell now, he, you know, he's like on the cover of like magazines and shit. So, um, you know, he, he was not, you know, uh, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, that particular character is the worry wart of the group, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, I think Corey Feldman towards the, towards the end of the film, in that scene where they're deciding whether or not to go back after the leeches, um, I think Corey Feldman calls him the world's biggest pussy, uh, which is what finally makes him snap. Uh, it's like yeah. the first time he defends himself uh, is is that scene where he fights uh, Teddy. Yes, I think I think that scene also isn't necessarily because I mean in the film the the boys call each other pussies like left and right. Yeah. Um, but like in that scene, I think he defends himself not necessarily because he's being called that because you know all of them have been. Uh, addressing each other by the by like terms like that the entire uh, the entire trip, I think a lot of that is because he was legitimately worried about Gordy, and he's like, no, you know, this is ridiculous, you know, this, you know, that's, you know, at least in part, a part of that's a reprisal of him trying to protect his friend too, you know. Yeah, he he's not the voice of reason, but he's you know he's the scaredy cat of the group. You know, he he's the one who comes up with the idea of going to see the body, but then when it comes down to it, he's the more reluctant one that actually doesn't want to go. Um, you know, he uh, 
when they go across the railroad tracks, he's the only one who's like crawling because he's afraid, you know, of, of heights, I guess, or something like that. Um, he's really, uh, it's, it's a comical scene, but when they're keeping watch later in the movie, uh, around the campfire, um, they, they, he, um, is very jumpy with the gun and they play it for laughs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, when they decide to go off the railroad tracks and go through the woods prior to the leech scene, um, he's the one who doesn't want to go and says, you know, you don't know what's in those woods and then has to kind of run after them because they're leaving him behind. So I think, I think that character is defined by that particular trait that he is kind of more driven by fear than anyone else. Um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, generally, I think the premise of going on the journey, I mean, I remember as a kid hanging out with friends and wandering around doing stuff, but the, the idea of going on a trip explicitly to see a corpse, you know, that's kind of a ghoulish endeavor, you know? So I think his reaction is pretty much the normal kid reaction, you know? Like, I, I don't, I definitely wouldn't have gone, if someone told me there was a dead body somewhere, I definitely wouldn't have gone to look at it. All right, all right. I think I think curiosity may have gotten the best of me. Uh, you know, I, I think I would fall in with the other the other three. Um, you know, like I, I may not want to touch that dead body, but I I think I would want to actually like have that. You know, the the experience is there for the taking. You know, you want to go grab it. So, because um, everyone else is super excited. Although they're sort of motivated by the fact that not only are they going to see a, a dead body, but they think that they're going to be like on the news and hailed as heroes and things like that, which is kind of like a, I, I guess, you know, a very, a very kid viewpoint to have on a situation like that. And I think, you know, the only one of the four of them that really has any perspective on it because of his brother is the Gordy character, um, who at one point as they're walking says that they're going to see a dead body maybe it shouldn't be a party so he's he's sort of you know the the maybe the most sensitive of them to that to what you know to to what they're actually doing um but let's talk about teddy for a second um you know teddy is uh you know obsessed with uh the army uh you know his you know there's uh sort of a refrain for the character of, uh, of him wanting to be a soldier. Uh, we find out later that that's because of his father who, um, was in world war two and stormed the beaches of Normandy. Um, but he's, he's a bit, he's a bit on unhinged. Um, you know, and there's that scene where Chris has to pull him off the, uh, the railroad tracks as the train is coming because he wants to stand there and basically, uh, dodge the train. Uh, so not that he has like a death wish, but there's, there's a bit of a recklessness in him that I think you don't get with the other characters. Yeah, definitely. Um, now there's references in the film to his father having been, you know, um, suffering some kind of mental, um, breakdown. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you know, we know now that it could be something, anything, you know, not necessarily like mental illness, um, like genetic or could be something like post-traumatic stress disorder from being a soldier. Right. Which Um, they would have called shell shocked back in the day. So it's, you know, kind of left, left unknown, but 
like that has affected him. Yeah, and he's very defensive of his father's good name, uh, which I love about that character, actually. Uh, I, I think he's maybe maybe the least likable of the four, but I really love him, you know, for that particular quality. You know, he gets enraged when the guy at the junkyard calls his father a loony. Uh, and, and he says something like, I'm going to rip off your head and shit down your throat or so, something like that. That's not verbatim, but, uh, but I, like, I love that quality of him like, coming to the defense of his father. Even though I think there may be a touch of fear that he himself has whatever his father has, and we'll develop that later too. Well, I think um, something that's, what he's introduced, something that I liked a lot is, um, they're inside their treehouse, and, you know, they're play, uh, Teddy's playing cards with Chris, and uh, there's a bit of a voiceover that introduces the character, and, you know, initially I didn't notice, like, his ear having been, like, um, kind of damaged. Yeah. Um, but then, like, as, like, it's very interesting that, like, during the voiceover sequence, once that's addressed about um, the anecdote of his father um, um, doing that to his ear, that's when you notice it. Because it's it's off, like, top right frame, so you don't necessarily see it because, you know, your eyes are drawn to Corey Feldman and his glasses because that's his first introduction. Right. I, thought, I thought that was a pretty effective scene for, I mean, visual um, just, uh, visual explanation. So. Yeah, and it, it seems like, because at the end of the movie, uh, he he only references throughout the film his mother, um, with the exception of talking about his father's military history. Um, so, like, you know, this is this is just me kind of, like, reading between the lines, but it seems like maybe his father was put away after the incident where he burned his ear, uh, and, and only his mother is raising him now. Um, I, I think Feldman plays the character pretty well. I think he does have a tendency, and, and this is across the board with a lot of his kid performances, he has a tendency to sort of go big. So it, it almost seems like he's overacting a little bit here or there. But I think you can kind of explain that away. Like, kids do go big, you know, and, and kids yell when they should talk and, um, you know, they get excited easily and, and laughter becomes uproarious. And, and, and uh, so I, I don't necessarily mind it, but it is something that I'm aware of as I'm watching him, you know, give his performance in the film. You know, um, that scene with uh, the junkyard owner, you know, the aftermath of that scene is very, you know, with how explosive that scene is with him. After they drag him away, the, um, you know, the aftermath as they're continuing on their journey with him, it's a, it's a pretty, like, yeah, you hit, I wouldn't say you hit, like, a roadblock, but, like, yeah, that's, that's a really serious look at, you know, how it affects him. Yeah. Um, you know, him being, like, a, he, he turns literally broken, um, and his friends, you know, there's a camaraderie that exists in, in this film, but you don't necessarily see it um, as rich, I think, until that scene. Um, you get a bit of it when you see um, Gordy and Chris interacting with just the two of them. Uh, but that scene really kind of hammers home like how you know together they are. So I mean, I think that's I think that's that's a a good uh, a good cool down necessarily from like which your you know aforementioned explosion of emotion. Definitely. Um, well, let's let's move on to Chris real quick. Um, you know, I mean, 
Uh, River Phoenix, I think, is far and away the best actor of the four kids. Absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, he also, uh, and I'm not sure I didn't look it up, but he also seems like he might be the oldest of them. Um, and he certainly plays the, the big brother type in the film. Uh, but he's kind of the leader. Uh, you know, he's obviously best friends with Gordy, um, but he's sort of the protector of the group. Um, and I, I like that he... It's it's the, I guess, the, the rubber band effect uh, where he's kind of snapped in the other direction from his father's abusive, alcoholic nature. Um, he's kind of, instead of following his father's footsteps, he's sort of going the opposite direction and becoming more of like the caregiver, uh, the caregiver and, um, the mentor to like these other kids. Uh, I, I, I love that he's always the one that kind of makes peace whenever there's something wrong in the group. Uh, the whole give me some skin thing, um, uh, after, uh, the train sequence with Gordy and where he has to pull him down and they start to actually have like a, a fist fight. Um, and then afterwards he's like, you know, he's like, let's, you know, let's make up, give me some skin. Um, and although Teddy is, uh, I think I said Gordy, but I meant Teddy. Um, you know, Teddy's a little bit reluctant, but, you know, Chris, Chris has a way of calming everybody down and kind of making things okay. Uh, and I, and I certainly like that about him. Yeah. I think, uh, as a character, I mean, River Phoenix, like in this movie, like I, I didn't realize like how freaking good he was like his his like intimate scenes and like his little his delivery he's got so many good moments in this film i think uh um when he and gordy when chris and gordy are talking about uh going to school or going to middle school um when school year starts and being in different courses um it's really effective um how his mentorship role kind of comes into that and like how his concern for Gordy's welfare as well as the welfare of everyone else is, you know, way beyond his own. Yeah. Um, even though he's definitely, you know, as revealed later on, he's a kid that, you know, he's a sensitive kid. He's got his own worries. Um, and I, I think like, you know, this movie isn't necessarily a character study, but he's, uh, Chris is, Chris as a character is, is fascinating and, you know, he's endearing. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think River Phoenix definitely has a charisma. Um, you know, he, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him in anything that I didn't like him in, even if the movie wasn't great. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, even in like, you know, this is an easy one, but like his little stint in Indiana Jones, the last crusade where he plays like the young Indiana Jones character, you know, like he does some pretty amazing things that sort of like just, uh, that give you just this little hint that he would grow up to be Harrison Ford, like in, in the behavior and the, and, and some of the things that he does, um, and how he inflects his voice and things like that. Uh, he's, he's really, you know, a gifted performer. Um, for Chris, even though he's probably the one, I mean, yeah, obviously what happened to Teddy, uh, and the abusive nature of his father, um, is is pretty serious, but it seems like Chris is uh, Chris has the worst home life. It seems of the four, and uh, he is able to sort of like be the father for his group that that his father isn't to his family. And I, I think he bounces back very quickly. 
Um, you know, even after like the scene where he's humiliated by Ace, where he kind of stands up to Ace and then Ace puts him to the ground. Um, and we definitely got to talk about Kiefer Sutherland. But after that scene, he, he bounces back so quickly because Ace takes Gordy's brother's Yankees cap, um, which is a very significant thing for Gordy. So Gordy's upset and Chris has to calm him down. But it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a real downer of a note. But as soon as they start to walk away, what does Chris do? Like, he kind of kicks him in the pants, and he kind of makes him smile. And it's, like, it's that, that nature of that character that really endears me to him. Uh, you know, he's, he's the one who's always thinking of the other ones before himself. Well, I, he's, um, I mean, there's, there's a number of uh, things that, uh, yeah, you mentioned his home life being, being rough. Uh, you know, a lot of it has to do being in a small town. Their town, Castle Rock. You know, I can't remember exactly how many uh, people live there. I think he says the population at the beginning of the film. But small towns like that have, you know, reputations for people. So I think with his father being such a, you know, apparently such a bastard, um, you know, by extension, he and his own family get turned into that. So I mean, you see his older brother being a hood along with Ace. Um, but I think, you know trying to survive expectation. Uh, maybe not expectation is not the right word, but um, trying to survive his family's reputation and prejudice um, is something that he's have, he has thought about a lot. That has a lot of difficulty. Um, you know, he's got his own um, self deprecation um, at the same time of him trying to lift up Gordy. Yeah. Well, I, I, we should maybe maybe jump, just because you're, we're kind of talking about it already, jump kind of forward to the, the whole milk money thing. Um, I mean, it, Chris is a good guy, but Chris doesn't always do the right thing. Um, and, it, you know, there's the whole thing where Gordy's father talks about his friends, and he's like, you know, Chris stole the milk money, so he's a thief in my book. Um, so we, we kind of find out later, because Gordy defends him uh, to his father, but we find out later that he did steal the milk money. He doesn't defend him to his father. Doesn't he? Well, he says he's a thief in my book, and Gordy just kind of stands there and doesn't say anything. Well, but before that, he says he's not a thief. Doesn't he? Because I think the father says something like, why can't you have friends like Denny's? And he's like, my friends are okay. And he's like, you know... The Chambers kid is a thief, and he's like, Chris Chris didn't steal anything, and he's like, he stole the milk money, so he's a thief in my book. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a defense there. Like, I, I think, um, you know... We, well, once I, maybe I was thinking the address of the milk money itself. So. Yeah. Um, well, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Um, so, like, the whole, the whole breakdown scene with Chris, uh, once he finally has... Because everybody has a breakdown except for Vern. You know, because Vern's the more well-adjusted one. Um, but, you know, um, Teddy has his breakdown after they uh, escape from the junkyard and the, the whole thing about his father being a loony. Um, and Gordy has a breakdown later. Uh, but Chris finally has his breakdown in a quiet moment, you know, that's only shared with Gordy. Um, and where he talks about stealing the milk money and wanting to give it back and, uh, you know, how he, he wanted to give it back into this teacher called Old Lady Simons, 
and how somehow once he did, the milk money still never showed up, but old lady Simons arrived at school the next week with a brand new suit. Um, and Gordy remembers that, you know, the brand new suit that old lady Simons had. Um, and he, he feels like life is really stacked against him in Castle Rock, you know, for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, you know, being such a small town, people have long memories, uh, and people tend to, you know, uh, put a label on families, um, and, and it's very difficult to get out from underneath stuff like that. You know, he's smart enough to enroll in advanced classes, but, you know, I think he says, quote, something like, like, they won't let him because he's one of those low-life chambers kids, um, and when he breaks down, he just, you know, he starts to sob and says that he wants to go somewhere where nobody knows him. He wants a clean slate. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's something that I think a lot of people can relate to, uh, you know, letting the mistakes of the past be gone and kind of move forward. Um, but he's having difficulty, you know, with people letting him do that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's also a pretty, you know, that's a notion that's very relevant to childhood. How many times of, you know, as a kid, um, you just figure, oh, I'll just run away from home. Or, or you know, even if you never did, that thought crosses your mind. You know, that's an easy answer to a lot of children um, when people have difficulty. Now, you know, thankfully, I don't think I ever had any issues as big as Chris's. But, I mean, for, for someone like that who's had a lifetime of it, you know, that's got to be an, that's got to be something that's see, seen as a more visible option. And, I guess for him and his friends, this being summer vacation, being away from home, a place that gives them such pain, you know, even for just two days on this little excursion, you know, the, you know obviously uh, this film shows that like the journey is much more important than the destination. Uh, you know, those two days on the road with his best friends, yeah, it's very meaningful, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's the, that's really the whole point of the the movie, the story. Standing by each other. Well, <laughs> I, well, I it actually, I, I I'll say I'll save what I was gonna say until we get to like the bookends and the Richard Dreyfuss stuff because like uh, I'm say I'm saving the negativity for later. <laughs> well, all good positive stuff right now. Um, so, um, but we, the only person we haven't really talked about is Gordy. Um, so, you know, Gordy, the Will Wheaton character, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously the one telling the story. He is the grown-up writer who is recounting what has happened during the summer of 1959. Um, he is uh, uh, grieving over the loss of his brother. Uh, his whole family is, um, and, and seems like they're all dealing with it in different ways. Um, he really misses um, his brother Denny, who in the movie is played by John Cusack in some flashbacks. Um, love me some Cusack. Um, but the biggest thing with Gordy is that his his mother is sort of like in a daze over the whole thing. Who she sort of is unresponsive to everything, um, as as is uh, demonstrated in the scene where he's trying to find his canteen, and she she can't even hear him. You know, she's going about her daily routine and hanging laundry. Uh, on an outside clothesline and you know he calls after her a few times and finally his father has to say something you know and tell him where the canteen is um but uh you know the the big thing with Gordy is that you know he 
he misses the love of his father. You know, he was never his father's favorite, but now that Denny is gone, there's almost a resentment towards Gordy. You know, that's that's where his breakdown in, later in the movie comes from, that he thinks his father hates him, that, uh, that he's not good enough. Um, and you get that, and I, I, I know you were thinking the same thing I was thinking when he has his dream and his father puts his hand on his shoulder. His father puts his hand on his shoulder and Gordy turns to him looking for reassurance and his father says, it should have been you, Gordy. Because <laughs> the wrong damn kid died. <laughs> we got a little Dewey Cox moment there. I guess I never realized how easy it is to cut a human in half. <laughs> I know, oh. right? <laughs> Uh, um, uh, you know, I think, um, one of the nice touches that, and I don't know if it's River Phoenix or if it's Rob Reiner or if it's actually written into the story because I haven't read the body. Um, but I, I think one of the great things that they do in this movie, it's very subtle is that, um, you know, the only time his father puts his hand on Gordy's shoulder is in the dream. And he says something very negative towards him. And every time in the movie, Chris puts his hand on somebody's shoulder, it's always a reassurance to let them know that everything is okay. And it's kind of like Chris is the father that they all need at this moment. Yeah, I think uh, that that also could like tie into Chris's home life as well. Um, you, it's easy to imagine like the Chamber's father being abusive, um, and you know they address it too that you know that he does. So like the physical contact that he feels from his own father is, you know, total opposite from the physical contact he delivers to like his friends. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if, I don't know if, I don't want us to miscategorize like, um, I mean, Chris's father's obviously a drunk. Cause at one point he mentions that he, uh, he took the gun and he, when Gordy asks if you, if you got shells, he said, yeah, I took everything that was in the box, but don't worry. My father will think he just shot them off when he was drunk one night. Um, and early in the film, when they're deciding whether or not to go on this adventure together, um, he says something like, sure, my dad will hide me, meaning that he'll spank him you know, or, or put a belt to him, but it'll be worth the hiding. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if his father is abusive in, in a very extreme way. He seems like he's a old school, like 1950s, like get the belt out kind of dad. Um, but he just seems like he is a, you know, a bit of a, like you, like you mentioned earlier, like a bastard. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if, I mean, I, mean, I think what happened, happened to Teddy is maybe more extreme. I guess you could assume that that family has that reputation because of something the father, the father did, um, and by extension, you know, his brood would get that same label. Yeah, probably. So, uh, you know, the the ensemble, these four kids, these characters, and the journey they go on. I mean, that's really, you know, the the crux, the strength of the movie. Um, but um, you know, obviously, you know, we've got the two different. They call themselves gangs, but obviously they're not really gangs. But, you know, you've got, like, uh, the, the four main characters, and then you've got basically the the older brother crowd, uh, which is, you know, like Ace and Eyeball and those guys. Um, they're not nearly as well-developed, although, you know, like, they, they do develop 
uh, Ace as being sort of like a a real dick. <laughs> yeah, he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and and very violent. Um, and uh, and they they've actually got that one scene and. I don't, I don't know if I'm if I'm kind of reading too much into this or whatever, but, you know, that's what I usually do anyway. But, like, the scene where Ace is playing chicken, where they're racing on the road, and there's a truck filled with logs coming down on his side of the road, and he plays chicken with the truck and ends up winning the race against his friends, um, it, it, it kind of, for me, it recalled Teddy with the train and the idea that, like, they, they sort of both had, like, a death wish... And it just made me question a little bit, like, if if it wasn't for Chris, because for me, I think he, even though Gordy's kind of the main character and he's telling the story, I think Chris is the most important character. Um, and it, it made me question whether Teddy would end up like Ace if it wasn't for Chris. Like, if, if they didn't have Chris in that group, would Teddy be the bully, the one who pushed people around? I mean, he does kind of push Vern around a little bit, but it's not it's not in like a super aggressive way. It's it's more you know like 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 twelve year old joshing. Yeah, you know you, you, um, you flinch double hits. Yeah, right. yeah, and they take advantage of Vern's fear, his timidness. Um, you know, just I, I guess like any other group of kids would, and it doesn't seem aggressive or or extreme in any way. But I, I, I like those two scenes playing off. Um, in the movie just kind of made me, it made me question, you know, like where Teddy would end up if it wasn't for like the influence of Chris in that group. So just food for thought, I guess, you know, it's not, you don't have to uh, respond. Well, <laughs> at, the end, at the end, they say, you know, after they drift apart, doesn't, doesn't Teddy um, commit a crime or something? Yeah, but he I, stays in the town. Yeah, it sounds like Gordy's not sure, but like it sounds like he spent some time in jail and then just does odd jobs around Castle Rock. I think that was the yeah. deal. Um, but he's alive, you know, and he's not really. It seems like he's not really making a whole lot of trouble for anybody. And you know, I, I the same probably couldn't be said for Ace. I don't know. You know, we don't find out what happens to Kiefer Sutherland's character. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, by the way, who made. It made the first like leg of his career all about like bullying, you know, just being an asshole on screen, you know, in, in everything asshole. he did. So he he's like one of the best like nineteen eighties uh, asshole kids out there. Yes. <laughs> yes, and that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, a far cry from the heroic Jack Bauer. That's true. That's true. Well, see, that was the second leg of his career, uh, which was, you know, uh, I mean, that show resurrected him too. Like that was, um, <clears throat> I don't, I don't think I watched it past like the second season, but that not only was that a good show, but a great vehicle for him. And I know he was a producer on that series, so I'm sure he made some Mune. Yeah. I mean, TV shows where you, where actors and actresses make money, if you ask me regular gig for years a successful show like that absolutely yeah and most tv shows have a, a much more regular schedule so you can actually have a family um you know where you don't have to like you're not going overseas for three months to shoot you know like lord of the rings or something like that or well three years for three lord years. of the rings but three years 
Yeah, but I mean, most movies, you know, like an Avengers movie, like, you know, they uh, transplant their entire family to to somewhere else for, you know, for four months or whatever to shoot a movie and then go back. Um, you know, TV stars usually do not have to do that. You know, they can uh, they can live in Vancouver or in L.A. or wherever they're going to shoot and they just they have a regular sort of Monday through Friday gig. Um, you know, and for, for many of for many people, that's that's the reason why they stay in TV, you know. So. Yeah, the regularity. I think uh, you know. I always find that television um, talent um, for our successful shows always uh, could contribute to like more money, especially with things like syndication. Yeah, uh, coming into play should a show like reach a certain milestone. So I think one of the most memorable scenes in this movie is is Gordy's story um, around the campfire, the Lardass story. For me, that was one of the scenes that I remembered, obviously, very vividly from seeing this when I was young. Um, you know, what Another about Goonies. you? Another Gooniesism, huh? Um, I do remember. I do remember that scene. It didn't resonate as well for me, um, for for my viewing, as it did when I was a kid. I think. I think, as a kid, the gross out humor kind of hits you a lot harder. Um, yeah, it's not really as gross as I remember it. Yeah, but you know. Um, I think it's an interesting interlude, um, but it also kind of it also kind of introduces you. You get the idea that he's a writer from like things that uh, his brother says and just references from other characters, but like his imagination. Um, that's that's the bit that kind of um, brings it out to you as the audience. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't think that scene's as strong as I remember it being. Um, not just in terms of humor, but. Um, in terms of contributing to like the, the character or like the film itself. Um, it's pretty early on in their journey, like their first night. And as, as an interlude, you know, it breaks up what's there, but I, you know, I definitely, um, prefer the dramatic elements that come later on that evening. Um, like with Chris and everyone else, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, for me, I, I, the the occasional moments of fun, you know, like them racing in the junkyard and the campfire scene, and um, you know, before the leeches when they're dunking each other in the water, um, th- those are kind of my favorite scenes. I think you know a lot of the a lot of the more dramatic scenes work for me, um, but I th- I think I get the most pleasure out of out of those moments of fun when they're just kind of being kids and it's not bogged down with like their. Uh, their, their personal issues, you know, like, so I, I like that scene a lot. And I, I like the fact that at the end of it, uh, Teddy is, is a little bit like he expresses some dissatisfaction with the ending, uh, which is kind of like a dig at like, uh, Stephen King critics, um, who a lot of times talk about, you know, like how, how they love, like, you know, everything but the last chapter of his book and stuff like that. Um, which is funny because I mentioned earlier that we had seen it chapter two and the character of Bill in it chapter two is a writer. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, the James McAvoy character and, uh, they also are poking fun at the fact that nobody likes his endings in his books in it chapter two. So like it all started right here and stand by me. (laughs) (laughs) Jack Torrance's ending to his book either, though. Uh, well, the ending, the middle, and the beginning are all the same, so. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> 
So what else? What else you got? Well, okay, I guess finding the, the was it the, the Browers boy? Yeah. Um, like uh, that the, scene. The actual moment when they see him? Yes. Okay. Um, that's when Will has his major breakdown. Yeah. Well, because and, it, triggers, know, it triggers it triggers um, him over over Denny, his brother. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I mean, that's we we addressed that scene earlier, but I guess like the showdown between the boys and like uh, the gang member, the gang members. Yeah. Um, I think that scene's pretty tense, and you really see uh, Ace Kiefer Sutherland's character, maybe not as psychotic because he's got kind of like this weird kind of like calm cadence to his uh, like delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think it's a good scene that you know, it shows Will standing up because, you know, the whole time he's uh, kind of afraid that he's not man enough for his father. Um, but that's a scene where, you know, he stands up for his friend and, you know, that's for, that's for an, from an audience perspective, that's, that's a very, very powerful thing, especially considering Chris is being the one who's uh, being um, the protector the, whole, right. the entire time. Absolutely. And fi- finally, he gets protected by his friend. Um, I, I think that's a payoff of a couple different things. Obviously, that, um, you know, of Chris being the protector, I think it's a payoff of um, the, the, the previously talked about scene where Ace plays chicken, you know, where Ace is willing to kind of do anything and, and put other people in danger or at risk. Uh, so I think when he gets his switchblade out, um, and goes after Chris or starts to approach Chris, I think that that adds to the tension because you've seen him do something pretty crazy already. And we've seen him be violent towards Chris already. So when he gets that switchblade out, I think the tension is very real that he may cut Chris. I don't think anybody thinks he's going to kill him, but I think you know that he, he would really hurt Chris. Yeah, um, like, Even with his brother there. What a shitty brother, man. He didn't even stand up for him. He's yeah. standing right behind him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's it was also established that, you know, obviously Ace is the leader of his group and that he sort of bullies and, and pushes everyone in his group around. So they're afraid to stand up to him. And, I, and I'd and i like to think, obviously, this is, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> this is just me. But I'd like to think that everything in their group changed after this as well. You know, once they see these these other kids stand up to Ace, that maybe they would stand up to him as well. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's you know, you'd wish that would happen, but I guess the ecosystem of a group like that, especially small town, small town USA, it's pretty difficult to like change. Yeah, that's true. Just a wishful thinking on my part. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say it was a bold choice. But I didn't remember them actually showing the face of, what is it, Ray Browers? Is that the name? Browers. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the first name. Um, I, I, when I seen the movie growing up, I don't remember that specifically. So when I was re-watching it, like, I was almost sure that they weren't going to show the face. Uh, and when they did, I was a little bit surprised. Um, but I'm glad that they did. They, that kind of makes it real. And it kind of makes it real for like for the kids that they actually get a moment to look at the face of this guy. Um, and the whole movie, you know, uh, th- these guys are are surrounded by you know violence in their home and and uh, and 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 death 
you know, Danny's death and the death of Ray Browers kind of like bringing their mortality kind of up to the surface. Uh, and then you, you got the, like the shop owner guy who says, um, he has like a Bible quote. Uh, I wrote it down. Hang on. What is it? Uh, he says, the Bible says in the midst of life, we are in death. Um, and I, I think that that is, you know, a, a very strong echo in the theme of the movie that, you know, that we live our lives surrounded by, by death. Uh, and that, um, you know, like getting, getting through it, um, takes support from our friends, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, like, uh, that scene is intercut with the flashback to dinner, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when when Denny is giving him support, telling him he likes his story, and his father's being dismissive, and, you know, the father kind of hems the mother down from being a mother. <laughs> um, so I think... In that moment, Gordy is reading that Bible, like that Bible quote, in a different way, maybe. Yeah. Than where, where he would read it after having, you know, seen the body. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Absolutely. Life in front of him. Or death in front of him, so to speak. Um, you said we're going to start this discussion with good stuff only. <laughs> We've been doing a lot of good stuff. Well, so, I was just going to say, why don't, why don't we move on to Richard Dreyfus and his voiceover <laughs> and the bookend, <laughs> which I freaking hate. <laughs> um, I personally, I think, um, I think some of his voiceovers, um, seem very odd, um, or awkward, like, like they weren't sure like how they were going to cut them in maybe to certain things. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's probably not true, but it almost seems to me that the writing needed another pass. Like they needed another draft to get it right. Um, you know, like specifically, um, you know, like, like I, I wrote down, like when they're talking about Vern's pennies, it kind of cuts in on a really weird spot in the conversation when they're in the clubhouse. Like it just kind of like trails off and the, and the voiceover stops or starts, um, in a spot where, like, I kind of felt like it was almost interrupting something that was more important than what Dreyfus was saying. Um, I, you know, and I mentioned earlier that I thought it was just super odd to open it up with a car in the middle of a road, not, you know, and, and Richard Dreyfus sitting there. Um, the, the whole thing gave me... It gave me, and this could be intentional on, on the part, because it is a story that is set in 1959, but it kind of gave me, like, a weird old Hollywood vibe where, like, transitions to scenes were a little bit rough. Um, it, like, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, that when, when they had to front-load a movie with, like, exposition or with setup before you get to the good stuff that they would kind of move it along at a weird pace. And this kind of does it as well. Um, and I just kind of feel like I, one, I think it doesn't work for me. Um, you know, as a throwback, um, I kind of find it stilted and frustrating. Um, 
I, but once you get to, I think I wrote it down. Yeah, once you get to like the 11 minute mark, which is after they've made the decision to go on the journey and Chris gets dropped off on a truck to meet Gordy right before they, he shows him the gun. Um, that's when the movie, I think, really kind of like starts to hit its stride. But like the first 10, 11 minutes, I think is really rocky, personally. And it makes it seem like, like the voiceover and the book ending, for me, makes it seem less of like a real true coming of age story or loss of innocence story. And it, it kind of makes me feel like this is how, like an adult story about how just we lament the loss of our youth and stuff like that. Um, how, like the flashback as we see it, is this true or possibly embellished because Gordy's become a, Gordy's become a writer. So like the trueness yeah. of what we're seeing isn't, isn't exactly confirmed is what you're saying. Yeah, possibly, you know, and that goes to the line where, where Chris says, um, you know, maybe if you get hard up for material, you're right about us one day. And, uh, and Gordy's response is, I guess I'd have to be really hard up for material. <laughs> he seems like he's doing pretty well for himself though, huh? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's at, like the rest of the film, because of the voiceover and because of the bookends, like it, it kind of feels too bogged down with nostalgia and melancholy to me, which is why I think, like I mentioned earlier that I like a lot of like the lighter moments and like the playfulness of like their childhood stuff the best. Um, so I don't know, like it, this has never been one of my favorite movies, although I do enjoy it, but I kind of feel like, um, tonally, like it's just not, it, it's just not there. It's not where I want it to be. It's, it's not connecting with me the way that I think other great kid movies have. Sure. I can see that. I think as a film, like I, I definitely, I mentioned earlier, like I view this quite differently as an adult. I still like it immensely. I gave it a pretty, pretty strong, strong score on Letterbox, like one, one of my higher ones all year. But, I saw that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like how much of that is nostalgia for me in my youth. Maybe it just hits me in the right moment. The, yeah. The way this this film kind of tackles a lot of issues that are relevant to adults and children. Um, you know, the, the reflection that I have after, the reflection I had after watching this film I think um, is meaningful in a different way than something like The Sandlot which you know it's for a lot of people that's the perennial kids film of a certain generation you know yeah Sa Sandlot's great I, I think The Sandlot really works um, and The Sandlot has its I mean obviously they're not dealing with the death you know, or, or anything like that. But The Sandlot has its more, um, you know, serious moments to it as well. But yeah, like, that, that's, that's one that I like better just because it's so much more fun and, and you know, I, I love baseball and stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, in general, I like this movie, um, but there's just, there's just something that holds me back from loving it. And I think, I think that emphasis on, you know, the nostalgia and it being such a such a sad story from an old guy who's reminiscing about his dead friend <laughs> and his dead brother <laughs> and the fact that his daddy didn't love him and it just kind of weighs it down for me a little bit. Um, so I, mean, I guess that would do it. <laughs> if, if not that, then what? 
<laughs> so, all right. Anyway, um, we're going a little long here. Uh, so, you got any final thoughts for this? <laughs> final thoughts? Um, well, I mean, I feel like I've said it all. Like, I like this film a lot. Um, and you know, I chose this film because there was a, there was a, at the time there were a number of Stephen King, uh, a couple Stephen King films coming out, which you know, it Chapter Two has been released, and Doctor Sleep comes out pretty soon. So I wanted to do something timely and. You know, this is a film that um, I've been wanting to revisit for quite a while. Um, so I'm glad I did. Um, I'm glad I did, too. Yeah. How about um, final thoughts from you? Nah, I've said my piece. Uh, you know, I, I, I like it. I don't love it. I think the kids are good. I like the lighter moments. And, uh, you know, I just I just wish it was a little bit lighter on, uh, on the, the heavy stuff and the nostalgia. So... But, you know... 1986 movie making. There you go. So, yeah. yeah. Well, this is, uh, this is almost peak Rob Reiner. I mean, that guy had a, a pretty great series of movies towards the 80s and early 90s. You know, stuff like Stand By Me and uh, Misery, When Harry Met Sally, A Few Good Men. I mean, he was knocking them out. Uh, a Few Good Men is in the 90s, though, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Well, I said 80s and 90s, sir. I think I said that, sir. Okay. He had a good run of movies. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Rob Yar. <laughs> he did. And his style, um, very unobtrusive, uh, you know, as far as the actual, like, craft. You know, it doesn't do a whole lot of showy stuff. Um, kind of, you know, puts the camera there and, and works really well with actors, being an actor himself. I think that's why he gets great performances out of people. Um, so, yeah, he's a solid director. Yeah, I agree. And I, I gotta, I guess, um, it'd be weird not to mention it, but like how many movies have we, re, um, have we done, uh, that feature Corey Feldman in them? Like we did, one. we did, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just this one, right? We haven't done a full episode on anything else that he star. Oh, we did the burbs. Yeah. Okay. We did the burbs. Two movies. Did we do Goonies? No. I don't know. We've talked about Goonies a lot, though. I mean, Goonies is one of those, like, it's one of the 25 movies that, like, you know, we played so often at Suncoast that it just, we know them backwards and forwards, and it just enters into the conversation because that's a, it's a, it's a touchstone for us. You know, I'm going to have to go back and take a look and see what other Corey Feldman films we've done. That's two, though. All right. Two. You do that. Uh... <laughs> Awesome. Well, seriously though, <laughs> nice. Uh, well, we can actually uh, uh, let people know we've already decided what our next episode is going to be on. So that's going to be on Billy Wilder's The Apartment, starring Jack Lemmon and Fred McMurray and Shirley MacLaine. Awesome. Um, so you guys can can go out and uh, you can get that. It's it's available as a Criterion Blu-ray, I think now. There's an Arrow uh, Blu-ray too. There you go. Just like the huge and it's also available on Prime free for streaming, I believe, right now, too. So um, so check that out and join us next week. And, uh, you know, um, hey, where can people find you on the Internet, sir? Well, of course, you can find me at filmsmash.com or um, on Twitter at Junior B. Hill. And you can find me on Twitter at Setting the Frame. And uh, definitely um, hit us up on Facebook and join the... Um, celluloid jelly facebook group so you can join the discussion and uh if you have 
any suggestions, uh, you can either DM us on Twitter or put it in the Facebook group. Yep, absolutely. All right, cool. Well, Cesar, thanks for joining me again. Great conversation. Yeah, um, I'm curious, though, how long was this episode, was our recording? Well, I'm going to shave a couple of minutes off, I'm sure. But, you know, I mean, right now it looks like we're hovering around 124, 125. Nice. Well, that's that's what you guys get because uh, I skipped a couple of weeks, so you get a <laughs> little bit of a bonus. Yeah, we had to catch up. <laughs> All right, cool. shave off the entire intro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to shave. Don't worry. I'm going to shave. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.